Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Welcome to CBS Eye on Veterans. Reporting for ConnectingVets.com, I'm Navy veteran and journalist Phil Briggs. This week we'll focus on the incredible power of fatherhood and its connection to veterans, PTSD, and mental health. Our guest is Patrick Smithick, father, gifted storyteller, and author of the current book, Wars Over, Come Home. It's the story of a father's quest to find his Marine Corps combat veteran son, Andrew, who is tragically roaming the country, and he's homeless, and fighting severe mental illness. We'll hear how his son's post-military transition slowly went off the rails, and how his combat-related PTSD may have played a pivotal role in his son's decision to leave reality behind, live on the streets, and how his father has traveled across the country, searching city by city for his son. We'll also hear how their ongoing quest and the kindness of others committed to his cause are all evidence that even in our darkest days, there are always those who will give us hope. So with that, let's say hello to loving father, gifted author, Patrick Smithick. Welcome to CBS Ion Veterans. Thank you, Phil. It's, it's good to be on your show. And I'm, I'm excited to discuss the book and our, our journey, as you said, searching for Andrew. We've been, we, uh, most of the book uh, is about a period where for quite a while we didn't know where Andrew was after um, he was de- decommissioned from the Marines. There, there wasn't much of a transition. And uh, he had served two tours in Iraq, had seen all kinds of uh, firefights and action and had to uh, pick up body parts and saw friends blown away. And next thing, um, after his second tour, he came home and uh, was in California. And I was kind of concerned about him when he when he left Iraq and was back in the States because he was, uh, you know, he wanted, he's, he was still kind of looking for that adrenaline rush and he was just nervous and twitchy and jumpy and doing things like driving down to Mexico and coming back and just making it for PT at 530. He'd say, dad, we just made it back and I, and I, I won the five mile run, but, uh, there wasn't much of a decompression after Iraq. 
uh, all of a sudden he's supposed to just go back into civilian life. And um, he did for a while, for a few years, he, he had uh, some really good jobs working security, and then he moved on to truck driving. But then he gradually started becoming uh, paranoid and nervous, a little bit schizophrenic, and uh, all the symptoms of PTSD started cropping up after about a three-year period. Let's talk a little bit about first his deployments. Marine Corps, tip of the sword, and just God love those guys. Um, where were his deployments and what years? He was in the Marines from 04 to 09, and uh, his deployments were in Iraq, and he was there during General Petraeus' uh, surge during his second tour. During the first tour, that was when really our, the United States, our country, and the military did not have their act together. That was when you'd read in the newspaper that moms were sending flag jackets over to their kids and the, the Humvees weren't armored underneath and they were IEDs were blowing them up. And, the, and uh, when Andrew was over there, he was at the base and the, uh, the enemy was driving up to the concertina wire all around the base. They were zooming in and just little battered pickup trucks and launching grenades into the camp. He saw uh, a sergeant. He was in charge at this point of water. Water was extremely important, as you can imagine, in Iraq. And he was in the infantry, and in a, and his platoon was uh, also in charge of water. And they had set up uh, these showers around the camp, and he saw the grenade hit a shower that his sergeant was in. So that first tour, uh, we were we were really nervous. And then the second tour, uh, when he got over there, the great thing about the Marines was that he was there for the precise time the Marines said he was going to go, which was eight months. And you remember during Iraq, you'd read in the paper that the certain National Guard unit has to stay longer and a certain Army group is staying longer than they originally planned. But the Marines were good about that, and they brought him right back. And then he, he was back in the States for a while, and then he went over for the second tour. And at that point, we we were more organized. He was in this huge armored truck, and he was up top with a Madus, this big uh, double-barreled machine gun. And uh, I remember I was teaching school, and I was teaching medieval history, and we were studying studying, uh, you know, the Arab civilizations and nomads. And he sent me an email one day, and he said that uh, that he was that they were driving across the uh, desert in this patrol and it was so tedious because in the, in the front of the patrol, they'd have this big steamroller kind of machine to purposely blow up the IEDs and had these huge rollers and it wouldn't hurt that, that vehicle. So they can only go about seven or 10 miles an hour. And he's up there baking in 125 degree heat behind the machine gun. There's not a person or a living animal in sight. And all of a sudden on the horizon, they see something and there's this big crowd of something and it's all moving and the, and the, the soldiers all get the Marines get, you know, kind of jumpy, like they're going to have some action. And as they got closer to it, he said it was one of the most beautiful things he'd ever seen in his life. It was one man coming across the desert with about 400 camels delivering the camels somewhere. So he saw some, you know, he saw some beautiful sights there, but, but then he was, so he was experienced and he also saw some terrible things. For instance, um, they had a new captain to his, uh, platoon and the, uh, they were sweeping houses and going through villages and sort of checking. That was very, very dangerous work. And one day and the captain went 
and asked this young Iraqi woman for directions. And everyone in Andrew's platoon was saying, no, you can't talk to the women here. That's not going to work. Andrew was really concerned. And the next day they, they got up and they, they went through the town and there from an American flag was the young woman was hanging and the father had hung his daughter from the flagpole for talking to the Americans. And that was the kind of, you know, civilization he was in and the sort of things he was seeing during that second tour. Your description there shows the horrors of war. And those are the things that remain invisible after a veteran's transition, you know, deep down inside, not only did he see, you know, the brutality on the streets of the people there and what the terrorists were doing. But uh, I don't know psychologically what that does to, you know, the brain, scientifically speaking. But I know that anytime you witness the unnatural event of a death, it leaves something behind on you. It leaves a sort of a print on you and can really affect you in ways in the weeks, months, and even years to come. When he first got home, I want to dive into this a little bit. You talked about kind of the brief transition period he'd had coming out of the Marine Corps and trying to, you know, get on the trajectory for a good life. Did you notice anything that, that, that you felt, wow, he's a little different now. We need to make sure he gets into some clinical treatment right away. Well, he was, uh, impatient and, and, and he was, uh, impatient with civilian life. And the, uh, the great thing for him about the Marine Corps was the, he did really well in the Marine Corps. And when he was over in Iraq and it was so disciplined that he kind of thrived in that atmosphere. And he got, as, as of course, he got accustomed to that adrenaline rush. But he, when he was in Iraq, he sent me an email one time when he was there and he, and uh, early in the first tour, he said the, the whole secret of staying alive here and doing well is having all your equipment perfectly organized. And you have to have, he said, we have a lot of equipment. We have a lot of stuff. You have to have it all ready, and you have to be ready to go at any minute, and you have to clearly know where everything is. And everything has to be super punctual when they're all working together, especially when they're sweeping houses and going through villages. So he thrived on that discipline. As a young man in uh, high school, he uh, was a, the sport he liked the best was cross-country. What is it? It's basically a battle against pain, right? And he has a natural ability to do really well across country. And matter of fact, that really helped him when he got into uh, Paris Island. When he was there, he wrote me a letter one time. He said, uh, he said, Dad, we went and we first we did the 10 mile run. And he, he said, I did really well. I finished third. And I think I'll win it, I'll win it next time. And then they wouldn't let us sleep all night. And then the next day they had us crawling under wire and shooting live rounds over us and doing this and doing that. And then at the end, he only had about five minutes to write these letters. He said, Dad, I just want to tell you that I love it. So uh, that was all good for him. And then when he got out, there wasn't that structure. And that was something difficult for Andrew. So he got these the security jobs and he, and he did well. That He um, moved to New York. We talked him into moving to New York because I wanted him to take advantage of the, the military's um, paying for his education. And I wanted him to go, the GI Bill, to go back to college. So I kind of, being a know-it-all, talked him into going back to New York and, and enrolling in this college. But after a while, he just told me, he said, Dad, I, I just can't sit here and have these professors tell me about life after what I've been seeing. I'm, I'm just not 
he just couldn't do that. He was impatient with that. So he, he only stayed in for a couple of months and then he uh, was out and working security. Then he got a little bored working security and moved on to truck driving. But he was, uh, at the time, the one thing he was doing, he was self-medicating with marijuana sometimes, and you can't do that when you're driving a truck. And he was uh, jittery and nervous. And, he, and after a couple of years, he, he got a twitch. And then he started be- becoming paranoid after about the third year and thinking that his brother was in the FBI and was spying on him and, and, that, and, that, and that we had taken this inheritance away from him. And then his sister was doing something crazy. And so he had these paranoid thoughts that he thought that we were calling his places of work and telling them negative things about Andrew. So then when he was at work, he would he would talk to people and he after a while, he would scare him a little bit he'd, because he'd think that they were saying something about him. So this paranoia and this twitch and this nervousness gradually got worse so that he is always able to get a job really quickly, a truck driving or security job. But then he got his favorite job was driving a bus in uh, Palm Springs. And but even that it was he was just and he was commended for the wonderful job he did helping the retired people on and off the bus. They gave him a special certificate. But after a while, you know, he snapped. He talked to someone. He would say something. Like, what did you say? Because he was worried that people were talking behind his back. So long story short, gradually he wasn't unable. He was unable to hold a job. And then gradually he and we lost touch with him more and more until finally we didn't see him for about three years, two or three years. And he became homeless. Mm-hmm. And he has a, a small uh, disability that he gets, we think, from an ATM machine. And then he stopped calling us and we lost track of where he was. God love you, man, for having to have witnessed that. You talked a little bit about. Um, Aria said that, that there might be a possibility that her, her grandfather... Now, as you can hear, our interview was briefly interrupted by my six-year-old son, who appeared out of nowhere in the studio. But it elicited another anecdote from Patrick that demonstrates the lifelong commitment of a father and the memories that we'll cherish forever. Sorry. I've been there. I have three children. <laughs> the joy of the six-year-old perspective. Well, that that leads uh, me into something, Phil. I know that you have a six-year-old son, and and he's a swimmer. I'm a swimmer too. I I just I just swam a fifty laps in the neighbor's pool a half an hour ago. I love I love swimming. It calms me down and it's very rhythmical. And, and I used to be a runner. I'd always run five miles a day. And, and I grew up running with my son Andrew when, when he was in high school. And I we would run all summer to get ready for for track. But what I want to say is that um. I know you're close to your son, and Andrew was our most cuddly kind of child. So that's what really breaks our heart is now he's out there, and once in a while a retired police officer might might see him or someone will send us a video from somewhere in the southwest, and he's just whatever we've heard, he's all by himself. And as a child, he was always the most cuddly one. He always liked being with the family, going on family trips. And in the book, there are pictures of my wife reading to him and us always doing stuff together and his and then I just saw a couple of his friends the other day at a book signing, and he was always the leader of the pack, you know, his arm around his friends and planning trips and going skiing with them or going camping with them. And that's what breaks our heart now, to see this boy who was so social and loved his family so much, and and he's just, to to get through his life, he has just turned all that off so that he's pretty much just all by himself. 
he was also super eloquent. And um, so to see him not communicating with people, and it just breaks our heart. Yeah, I can only imagine. You'd said a lot there in kind of the trajectory of his life after he got out of the military. When he first started at school or maybe first started with one of these jobs after he realized school didn't take, were you asking him about was he receiving mental health services? Was he doing any time on the couch with a therapist at the VA or was he doing anything outside of VA services? Was he doing anything to address his mental health? No, he wasn't. And he and um, he, what he was doing was sometimes seeking out uh, adrenaline pumping behavior. And uh, he went up into some dangerous places in, in New York City and was doing some business deals. And he kind of liked that. He he liked being a little on the edge. And then I would talk to him. I'd say, Andrew, you don't need to do that. You don't need to be going up in these dangerous places and talking to these people. And and I said, you know, you're you're uh, you look military and those people might not like that. They're, they might resent it because he had a uh, for instance, when he was in New York, um, he was in a bar one night and there are these, uh, three guys and a, and a woman and the, uh, the, the one guy started pushing the woman and saying these nasty things to her and another guy pushed the woman and Andrew stepped in and, and said, Hey, you guys, you got to treat this woman right. You don't need to be doing that. And with that, he looked up and, uh, one guy, uh, got ready to swing at him and Andrew caught him with the elbow. And knocked that guy on his butt. And then another guy came at him and Andrew tossed him away. But then one came behind him and then they pushed him behind and they got him down on the ground and they just started kicking and kicking and kicking him until the, uh, you know, the bar called an ambulance and took him away. So that was like, I talked to Andrew and we didn't even know it until uh, a few days later. We, we found out that he'd been in the hospital for four days. And uh, he said, I said, Andrew, what, what are you doing? And he said, he said, dad, I had to do it. Those guys, they were treating that woman just terribly and they were pushing her. And one guy acted like he was going to hit her. And it was just something I had to do. And I said, well, three guys, Andrew. And he said, Oh, I would have had him, but that one guy got behind me. <laughs> so, you know, he was, um, he was just on edge and, uh, he, he'd been through so much in Iraq, I think. And, and uh he would in, engage in this behavior sometimes. So then when he got back, when he came back from New York and he was in Maryland for a while and I talked to him about it and I would try to just gently say, because then he got this twitch and I noticed he was paranoid about his girlfriend and, and, and also paranoid about some of his best friends thinking that they were turning against him. And I tried to say without using PTSD, because here's this young, strong man. And at the time he had a really good job driving a truck up and down the East Coast, delivering goods to hospitals. And it was very fulfilling to him. He started at 3.30 in the morning, and he, and he knew he was doing something to help make people better. And he met all the people at the hospitals. And he got out of the truck, and he got a promotion within just three months. But this paranoia kept creeping up. And I did talk to him, and it, I mentioned, I said, you know, it might be good to talk to someone. And I try not to use the term PTSD, but but he wouldn't have any of it. He was a young man, 25, 26 years old, and he thought he could handle it. Now, with that, we hear about the paranoia and the vivid descriptions that, again, I thank you for sharing. You know, we hear about that kind of paranoia when we talk about schizophrenia. 
Is it possible, do you think, that this is not all PTSD, but maybe there is an underlying mental health issue that makes it difficult to grasp reality? That could be the uh, the PTSD could be a catalyst. He he um, at one point we finally got him to into the VA and I read through 382 pages of analysis and, the, and Andrew had every single symptom that was on there. So the, uh, yeah. the PTSD is definitely a part of it. The once highly employable Marine now drifts between construction labor jobs and homeless shelters. As we'll hear, his father Patrick has traveled from Seattle to Florida, searching through homeless camps and approaching the homeless residents and asking the heartbreaking question, is that you, Andrew? But how do you effectively track someone who is living off the grid and does not want to be found? Then the last time we saw him was really in 2018. And he was completely homeless at that point. He gets a small disability. We tried to track it down through ATMs because of HIPAA and everything. You can't really do that. And the, the banks don't want to give the information. We understand why. And we did all kinds of things to try to get around that. But in Albuquerque, we had it set up, just as you said, we had the psychiatrist at a major hospital there. We had the administrators. And uh, all agree to he could go to the psychiatric unit. And we had the police and a special division of the very helpful police force in Albuquerque and lawyers. And my son had power of attorney. And we actually had him apprehended and brought into the hospital. And uh, they let him out and they released him in about 20 minutes. They said that he was lucid. And then we had a huge confrontation with him outside the hospital and tried to get him to to have help. And we tried to talk to him, but he got in the car as this happened so many times in the police car and the police drove him off to wherever he wanted to go in the area. So that was the last time we saw him. And since then we've heard reports because we searched all around uh, New Mexico. He's been moving around New Mexico and I've been to seven 11s and different places where he used to frequent. And the people all really like it when he goes there because they say it makes, makes him feel safe because some of the 7-Elevens and places where he's going are in dangerous areas. For instance, uh, there's one convenience store up by the foothills in New Mexico. And the woman said, as soon as I went in with the poster, she said, we know him. He said, he came in here a couple of weeks ago and it was late at night. And right at the time, a big pickup truck pulled with a huge angle and the subwoofers and music playing really loud. And the whole building was vibrating in these Two or three tough guys got out and came in and one stayed in the truck and the woman was really worried about her safety and whether they were going to try to rob the place. And, and Andrew walked in, she said, and, uh, the, and the music was just blasting and he could see she was all nervous. And he just turned to the three guys who thought they were so tough. And he, he's six three and he, he looked down and he said, he said, those are really nice. He talks in a very low voice. He said, those are really nice subwoofers on your truck. And, but would you mind turning them down a little bit? I think you're making the lady here nervous. And they just looked at him, got in the truck and left. So, um, you know, we have, we've heard those, that was three or four, three or four years ago. Recently, we haven't, we haven't heard anything from him. What an amazing picture you just painted here of this young man being tortured by his own mental illness, but at the same time, still trying to be a protector 
kind of some of the some of the ethos that the military and certainly the Marines instill in you. And, uh, you know, that even as he's fighting this fight, he's 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 still holding on to some of those some of those values. Let's jump a little forward. Um, it's been difficult to track him. What with, as you'd mentioned, HIPAA, medical privacy information, you know, they can't release it to just anybody. Law enforcement can't always bring him to where he needs to be to get mental health services. Sometimes they just have to bring him to where he wants to go. How did you, how are you able to track him through the course of this book now? Um, are you, you mentioned ATMs. How is it you're getting leads on where he's popping up and how do you know where to go to search for him? Well, he's on the, um, on the national, uh, uh missing persons list. And we got him on a, a sort of a FBI federal list, and he's on lists in different states. Um, he came to Maryland one time, and uh, early in the book, there's a chapter where I go and look, search for him in Seattle for a m- Memorial Weekend, actually. I searched for him for three days because I talked to him, and he was out there, but I couldn't find him. And uh, I fly back, and he's on the phone here in Maryland, and when we flew him from uh, Seattle to Maryland. But when he came here, the whole thing was kind of a disaster. He came to the farm and then he, then he got uh, paranoid that we were trying to do something that we were trying to put him away somewhere. We actually had it all set up for him to go to Shepherd Pratt, which is this really, really good mental health facility, as you, as you know, right here in, in Baltimore and a, a beautiful campus and a wonderful place. And so we were driving back from the airport and I tried to drive into the entrance. And he said, where are you going? This isn't the way to the farm. I want to go to the farm. Anyway, so that didn't work. And we got him on the farm and then he got up and he got irritated and started to leave. And he just started walking out of the farm. And so I walked behind him and then my wife called 911. We tried to get help. And then he was just walking away. And so I tried to tackle him to keep him from walking away because I knew that he could just leave and we might ne- never see him again. And this has happened so many times where he flipped me over his shoulder and punched me a few times and there was an altercation. And the reason I bring all that up, then then it was a terrible thing. All these cars were parked on the road and my wife was there crying and, and the, the police came and they sort of held us away from Andrew. They wouldn't, they, they were doing a really good job of keeping everyone calm. And, um, we kept trying to say that we wanted to keep him here. We wanted to keep him on the farm. And they said, ma'am, he has his rights. And so they put him in the car. And then at the end of that chapter, I see him drive off. And the same thing happened in Albuquerque. They they said, we can't keep him. He's lucid. He has his rights. And they put him in the car and they drove him off. So that's what's happened. And oh, you're mentioning how we've located him one time because he was on these different lists and the police have been extremely helpful. We had a detective Lawler here in Maryland who was really helpful. He set up a whole system when we knew Andrew was in Seattle that if Andrew had been arrested for simply um, sleeping in a park and they, they apprehended him and put him in a jail cell and due to all these lists, he's in detective Lawler knew he was out there and we tried to have him extradited to Maryland, but that didn't work. The only reason we could do that was that after the event in Maryland where he flipped me and punched me a few times, I went in into the police station and I filed a report on him. And that's what I had to do in order to get him on this certain list. For instance, one time he was in um, in New Mexico 
the the police on a reservation, the Santa Ana police apprehended him. And uh, they sent us a video when it was Andrew. And he had just been walking down from the foothills and been crossing uh, through this little village and didn't know that it was private property or that it was an Indian reservation. So they stopped him and they said, uh, you know, what are you doing? You, what are you doing? He said, I'm just walking through here. I'm trying to go that way, up, up that way north. And they said, you can't come through here. And he said, why is that? And they said, this is private property. And uh, it's an Indian reservation. We have signs here. And he looked at him. I like this part. He, we, he looked at him and he said, he said, you need a bigger sign. <laughs> well, they didn't like that very much. So then they put him in a car and drove him off the reservation. But the reason I brought that up was because the Santa Ana police were very, they notified us immediately that, uh, that they had seen him and they let us see the video when we went to the reservation. So in the other way, we've had hundreds and hundreds of, of very helpful people. Um, Andrew's, uh, aunt set up a Facebook page and, and it find Andrew Smithick and these people all over the country would be sending us pictures of Andrew and saying, we think we've seen him. We think we've seen him. So for years, we would get a sort of fuzzy picture and the people would say they saw him and we'd have to decide whether we were going to go or not. And then many times we went and then we searched and searched. One time in San Diego, there was a guy called Drew and we searched and searched and we finally found Drew out of the thousands and thousands of homeless in San Diego. But that was not our Andrew. So the, the public has been helpful, and the police have been very helpful. The freedoms and rights we enjoy in America make it difficult, if not impossible, for any authority to take him against his will, even if the final destination is the mental health care and family he desperately needs. Patrick shares where he believes Andrew is right now. We've been to uh, San Diego. To, uh, we we did a long search in Albuquerque, and uh, we did one in Santa Fe. And then we've had sightings. People in New Mexico uh, have sent us pictures, and they thought they saw a man pushing a bike. My son, Patty, flew all the way out to this little town. and But we're pretty sure he's in the southwest and he's in New Mexico because we have seen had these sightings. But we have to be uh, very careful, and, and we don't want to – of course, uh, to scare him off, and we want him to continue. He seems like he's living a peaceful lifestyle from the, the pictures we've seen, and so we have to be very careful on on what to do, and it's, it's kind of up in the air. Hopefully, if we can locate, narrow down where he is. Let me ask, how often do you get a sighting, or how often do you get a lead in an email or a message? During the height of the book, the period the book takes place, we would get leads every couple of weeks. And now we have um, some people in New Mexico, and they send us everything, something, uh, maybe a, a video from a distance, or they'll just send a note or a photograph, and that would be once every three weeks or once once a month or so. That's a re- retired policeman who sends sends it directly to my wife, and they've developed a relationship. And so uh, he seems to live in an area that that Andrew frequents. And again, following up on a sighting that could take days to get out there, you know, there's no telling what could happen in those days between when you receive the picture or the video and right. when you actually arrive in New Mexico. What's the takeaway for us from this book? I know it's what do you feel the takeaway is here for all the readers and certainly those with veterans and their family? 
just the other day at a book signing, I met a Vietnam vet who's exactly my age and told me at the signing that, you know, that he's had to fight PTSD all his life. And here he was, and he said he's still doing it, but he's gotten kind of control of it. So uh, the first thing I would tell people is that when they know young men or even middle-aged men who are leaving the military and just leaving the military in general, and, and especially those that have seen action in war, to sort of keep an eye on them and try to be gentle with them. And if they start showing any signs to to try to steer them to, as you mentioned, all these different therapies and, and many of them, some of them involve taking drugs and some of them don't, just yoga and writing seminars for veterans. And there's a, a general patent grandson has a program where veterans do films. That's one thing. And the other is just when they, when they're walking through a city and they, they meet a veteran who's begging or they see a veteran on the sidewalk, I've gone up and I've talked to them and I've asked them not exactly about what they did in the military, but I've asked them, you know, what they're doing, what's going on with their life. And they like being treated as human beings, as individuals and talking to people. And I think it helps. Of course, it might help to give them a little money, but it also helps to, to talk to them and, and uh, maybe somehow help them out. But the, uh, the last point is that it's not hopeless, and I think the situation can be better. So I, I think we can make progress. Most of the uh, homeless vets are Vietnam vets, uh, 47% of them. So they are getting older. Yeah. I especially like what you brought up there about how even finding these homeless gentlemen, the ones that were not your son, but when you come upon them, the conversations you're able to have. Somehow just talking to somebody about their life, treating them as a whole person, you know, that's part of the spree decor that I think the veteran misses. And when you're kind of drifting all far away from the pier outside there in your own kind of fractured life, it's just so critical that we talk to them. Those are incredible steps that I think most people just don't do. And it's vital to be able to help somebody. When I, when I was in Seattle, that was the only uh, searching for Andrew trip that I went on by myself. And so I got up every morning and I'd, I'd do a, a quick run through the city and then I'd come back, take a shower. And then I'd hike and I had a circuit where I'd hike through the city and I'd see the same vets, the same homeless vets. So for about four days and then by the fourth day, I developed a little bit of a relationship with them. There was this one veteran that every day was down on the waterfront and he always had, had a blanket over his lap and then he had a cup for the money. And I'd always put some money in his cup and I'd talk with him just briefly. And one day when I went down there and I always I wondered, you know, what was wrong with him? He was in a a, a wheelchair and he reached down uh, as I put the money in the cup. He reached down to pick the cup up and the blanket slipped off and he had no legs, no legs from the knees down. And so then I tried to I, I was going to help with the blanket and the cup and everything. He said, no, I, I got it. I got it. And he pulled it up. You know, he didn't he wasn't showing people his injury, but he did need help. The search continues for Andrew, and I know you're a great father, and you've never given up hope. Uh, you continue to take these leads. What's the future look like? That's the most difficult thing about this is that it's it's kind of endless. And my wife and I were talking about it the other night, and, you know, we don't want Andrew to continue living like this. He seems peaceful. So the family, 
part of the theme of the book is that the family members sometimes disagree. Early in the book, there's a quote, and I tell my daughter, Eliza, I say, you know, this searching for Andrew could could tear our family apart. And she says, yes, it also bring us together. So I'm learning better how to compromise and to listen. And so we're we're very gently continuing the search and trying to, to find him help. And it it is a, a terrible thought to me. And I, I actually just can't hold the thought that he would continue living like this for years on end. And I definitely hope that we can get him help and that that things could get better and he could get some therapy and he could rejoin society. So um, there are many things that he could still do. And uh, I think that uh, I have hope and I've learned from so many of these programs and I definitely have hope that we'll be able to find him help and he can improve his situation. You're in our thoughts, you're in our prayers. And, you know, more than that, I just know that, uh, you know, as a father myself, uh, I, I know this search will continue for as long as it needs to in order to bring Andrew home. The book, again, War's Over, Come Home, couldn't have a better title. It speaks to the heart of this issue with mental illness and how, you know, it's all of our job to take care of each other. And I found that in this story, as tragic as it is, you were able to paint some hope in it. And I think that that's really what we need, certainly as the family members and the caregivers. We need to remind each other that we are not alone. We are not dealing with this by ourselves. There's other people going through this. And that as your search continues for Andrew, I think that the hope that this story should paint is that there are services out there. There are ways to mend. Tip of the cap to you, sir. Uh, Thank you for shining a light on this issue and for helping us all realize that we are not alone. Thank you for having me on the, sh- on the show, Phil. I really enjoyed it, and I hope you have some good times with, with your son, Jack. Indeed, sir. Indeed. Hey, Prime members. You can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings.
Listen to Blood is Thicker, The Hargan Family Killings, early and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Plus.